As autistic individuals transition from adolescence into adulthood, they encounter a new and unique set of challenges. Yet at this critical time, the support available to them drops dramatically, and this is known as the services cliff. In this week's episode, we'll begin by looking at the journal article Service Needs Across the Lifespan for Individuals with Autism, then to discuss how your occupational therapy skills can help bridge this services gap, we'll patch in Deborah Davidson to discuss the research and her own experience providing transitional services in her private practice. Let's dive in. Welcome to the OT Potential Podcast, where we review new and influential OT research, then invite an expert guest to help us pull out actionable takeaways that you can implement in your practice starting today. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Lyon, OTRL. And before we dive into this week's topic about the services cliff, I wanted to let you know that this podcast may qualify as continuing education for you. Now, you are probably listening to this podcast on a free podcast platform, but to gain CEU credit, you will need to be a member of the OT Potential Club, our OT evidence-based practice platform. I'll give you more details on how you can sign in or sign up to take a test and generate a certificate at the end of this episode. But bearing in mind that this is a possible continuing education course, I wanted to explicitly state our two learning objectives so that you can be thinking about them throughout the podcast today. Our first learning objective is that you will be able to describe the unique challenges that autistic individuals face as they transition from adolescence to adulthood. And second, you will be able to identify the unmet service needs of autistic adults based on the findings that we'll look at in the research. So again, the article that we're looking at is called Service Needs Across the Lifespan for Individuals with Autism. This article comes to us from the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. It was published in 2016, and it is ranked 27th on our list of the 100 most influential OT research articles. So this article kicks off with an introduction about what we know and what we don't know about the service needs of autistic adults. And while there hasn't been much research around supporting autistic adults, there have been some initial studies that seem to highlight two overarching issues. One is just that lack of research, and the second is a lack of services for this population. So speaking to the lack of research, it is estimated that there are approximately 5.3 million adults in the United States who have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And that is a significantly higher number than the 1.3 million children who have been diagnosed. Yet even though people don't just quote-unquote grow out of autism, the vast majority of research has been focused on how to best serve children, which is roughly just one-fifth of the autistic individuals in the United States. And the limited research that does exist really indicates a clear need for continued support into adulthood. Based on the prior research, fewer than half of autistic adults are employed, and those who are employed are underutilized and or underpaid. Less than half of autistic adults live fully independently, and autistic adults have just complex medical needs. They highlight the fact that on average, these autistic adults have three additional psychiatric diagnoses on top of their ASD diagnosis. So that's kind of that theme of the lack of research around autistic adults. And then the other thing that I mentioned was the lack of services for this population. And past research has indicated that families of young children with ASD are at higher risk of having unmet service needs. And there has been some just initial research that the service use of these families, I'm talking about OT, PT, mental health services, etc., changes as the children age. And by change, I mean basically decreases. But that being said, up until this point of this research, it's unclear if that service use was decreasing because their needs have been met by those services or if it had changed over the year to needing different services that they weren't measuring. So that's kind of the questions and the unknown that leads us to this current paper. 
So why was this paper written? The intent of this paper was to compare service use across a lifespan for autistic individuals versus the self-reported unmet service needs. So how many services are they using versus how much unmet needs do they have within these services? So what were their methods for looking at this question? The data for this study was collected through the Pennsylvania Autism Needs Assessment. So this was a state-specific survey that was completed largely by the caregivers of individuals who had Medicaid reimbursement claims related to an ASD diagnosis. There were four survey modules that were available that were based on the age of the individual, and they grouped the ages into preschool, elementary school, middle and high school, and adulthood. And the services that they specifically asked about included speech and language therapy, one-to-one support, occupational therapy, social skills training, case management, physical therapy, medication management, neurology services, and mental health counseling. So what were the results of the survey? 3,440 caregivers responded to the survey, along with 141 autistic individuals. A total of six Spanish language surveys were received. And side note, we will be talking about the disparities in diagnosis in Latino populations in an upcoming podcast. So within this result, there were definitely interesting information on demographics, which I'll refer you to the article to read in depth, because the author's focus here was breaking down that service usage and unmet needs by the age groups. There's a great table in the article that goes service by service and age group by age group. But for our purposes on this podcast, I'm going to zoom in on the occupational therapy results, both because obviously we're occupational therapists, but also because those results were pretty indicative of what we saw in the other services. So here's how the numbers shook out. First, they presented the mean percentage of individuals receiving occupational therapy based on age group. So in preschool, 78% of individuals were receiving occupational therapy. In elementary school, it was 62%. In middle school, it was 39%. And in adults, it was 12%. So as you're listening, you can just hear that big decrease down from 78% at preschool all the way down to 12% of adults. And then the mean percentage of individuals reporting unmet occupational therapy needs. In preschool, it was 9% who reported unmet OT needs. In elementary, it was 12 In middle high school, it was 17%. And in adulthood, it was 21%. So again, there you can see how there's an increase of unmet needs related to occupational therapy from that 9% in preschool up to 21% of adults. And these numbers that we're hearing just reflect an overall trend where service use decreases as clients age and unmet needs increase over the lifespan. And in particular, this was especially prominent in speech and language pathology, one-to-one support, OT, social skills training, where again, they were having that higher unmet needs in adulthood. So what did the authors discuss and conclude? This study indicated that overall autistic adults receive fewer services than children and adolescents on the spectrum. And this finding aligns with the past research that indicates a services cliff that is experienced by autistic individuals and their family after the time of high school graduation. Likewise, significantly more autistic adults report unmet needs than younger individuals on the spectrum. And of note, the authors observe that the unmet needs and services seem to be really predominantly related to social communication. So as an increasing number of autistic adults age out of the school system, there seems to be a clear need for expanded services. And this might mean expanding some of the current services that are available, or it may involve establishing new services. And either way, adequately training providers like us as occupational therapists who work with autistic adults should be considered a priority moving forward. And two relevant advocacy efforts that the authors also highlighted were 
expanding the mandates that state private insurance must cover support for autistic adults. Right now, the majority of these mandates are restricted to children. And then also expanding access to Medicaid home and community-based services. So what were my takeaways for OT practitioners from this paper? Please note these are just my personal takeaways and they were not mentioned specifically in the article. My first takeaway was that in some ways it seems like a lot has changed since this paper was written. Again, this was a 2016 paper and it feels like our understanding of autism is evolving really quickly. In the club, we've discussed just how our paradigm, again, for understanding autism has been shifting in a really good way. There was quite a bit of deficit and disorder language in this article, but we are being pushed by the autistic community to become more strengths-focused. We are also putting more focus on how neurotypical attitudes and environments need to change to become more inclusive to the neurodiversity that is out there. So that means that the onus doesn't fall on our clients alone. It's on us as practitioners and just as a society as well. Meg Proctor and I talked about that in our previous podcast, Supporting Adults on the Spectrum. So if that's a topic that's interesting to you, I definitely encourage you to tune into that. My second takeaway is that even though it does feel like a lot is changing, it also feels like we are stuck in the same place where adults with ongoing challenges are simply being underserved by occupational therapists. In the OT Potential Club, you may have noticed that we just have this emerging theme that occupational therapy is not fully reaching the adults with chronic conditions and ongoing challenges to serve them in the ways that they need. From rheumatoid arthritis to POTS to dementia care, there are so many unmet needs in the adult population that OTs are poised to help address. We play such an important role in the healthcare system, largely because we can take the time to listen to these clients and think holistically about their health with them. And yet for just a variety of reasons, we seem to be missing the boat on connecting with this population. And my third takeaway is let's just keep listening and moving forward. It can be intimidating to think of the changes that would need to be made to occupational therapy to better serve autistic individuals across the lifespan. But these changes are needed and they are possible. Making change starts with listening to our individual clients and their collective voices so we can really understand how to best partner with them. And from there, we need to begin tweaking and changing our approach, taking it one day at a time. And if we do this, we can move forward to a future where OTs are seen as a natural choice to partner with clients and families as they navigate the complex challenges of navigating these ongoing challenges in an already complex world. So that sounds very ethereal, but to help us just unpack this article further and to get really practical about the implications, it is my pleasure to bring on fellow occupational therapist, Deborah Davidson. Deborah has engaged in occupational therapy since 1979 as a practitioner and clinical supervisor, professor, researcher, writer, editor, and business owner. Deborah earned a bachelor's in occupational therapy from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, a master of science from Boston University's Sargent College, and a PhD in educational studies from St. Louis University. Deborah specializes in providing OT services to children, adolescents, and young adults with mental health disorders and or intellectual developmental disabilities. She has worked in hospital psychiatry, community mental health, therapeutic schools, public schools, residential treatment centers, and home and community-based private practice. Deborah has worked with autistic individuals throughout her career and across the lifespan, from preschoolers through older adults. Deborah is fond of saying, the more autistic individuals I get to know, the fewer assumptions I fall into. Each client is unique and teaches me something new. So without further ado, I am going to patch Deborah into our call. Welcome to the podcast, Deborah. It's great to have you. Thank you, Sarah. I'm really happy to be here. I've been really looking forward to talking to you specifically about this topic because at the beginning of the year, as we were planning out the year, I was talking to colleagues and we had a little planning committee looking for someone who worked with 
adults on the spectrum and yeah. you are kind of a unicorn Ooh. or maybe you perceive that differently. But for me, it was kind of hard to find a guest who works with this age group. So I was wondering if you could kick us off by sharing how you first got started working with autistic individuals in that late adolescence, early adulthood time of life. Okay. Well, Sarah, my career has been a long one. Happily, I've been practicing for over 40 years. And so I've had a chance to do lots of different things. And in the beginning, I really wanted to focus on working with children who had behavioral and and mental health problems. And so I worked in therapeutic schools and community mental health and inpatient psychiatry with children. So school age and preschool age children. And then as I progressed in my time in the inpatient psychiatry unit, I was given the opportunity to work with the adolescents. And so I started doing that. And I think that's when my real fascination with transition planning started. Because I would wonder, you know, what's going to happen to this young man or young woman as they, you know, leave our hospital unit or in the case of therapeutic schools, leave our school and age out of high school, what's going to happen? And so I also had a academic career for 20 years. and, And while I was doing that, I had a lot of my students that were doing master's projects focus on transition. So they were my quick tutorial in what was in the literature. And most of that I did in the early mid 2000s. And, you know, so I learned that there just were so many needs Mm -hmm. in that. And when I was ready to leave academia and start a private practice, I really wanted to focus on what could I do? You know, what could I do as an OT using classical OT kinds of approaches to help folks who got stuck. And so I was able to have a private practice that um, was called Bright Futures and was able to do really focus my time and attention on working with late adolescents, young adults, and even mid-age adults. And a lot of them did have autism spectrum disorders, Mm -hmm. um, often combined with other kinds of emotional and social issues. But So that is how I did it. And (laughs) it isn't real easy for OT to find opportunities to work with that population. That's why, that's why I'm a unicorn. I I made my own. Yeah. And I'm going to be asking you questions about this practice throughout the episode, but before we turn to the article, I wanted to ask a question that popped to my mind, which as you started that private practice, did you see models of other people or specifically OTs providing transitional services? Or did you hodgepodge things together? I made it up as I went. Okay. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I did. Yeah. I did. And I used as my compass, you know, the OT practice framework and what I had been teaching based on that in like the OT foundations courses and all the other things. But yeah, I thought, let's see if I can practice what I teach. Mm, yep. And I could. And yeah. the good news is, in many cases, it really worked when other things hadn't been helping. Yep. So, And I think that speaks to whatever practice area you're in as an OT. We have such a beautiful theoretical base, but I think sometimes we ask ourselves, like, what would this actually look like in practice? Because we don't get to see it all the time. So I'm really excited to keep digging into that. I don't want to miss talking a little bit about this article that kind of set up this conversation. It was about the lifespan of autistic individuals, but to me, it really highlighted that services cliff, that adolescence to adulthood, there's an increased need because there's so many unique challenges that happen at that age from employment to housing to your social circles change and the routine of school is gone. Challenging for everyone who experiences that. But at the same time for our autistic clients, our services just plummet. Mm -hmm. So what were your impressions of this article? What stood out to you? What was missing? 
Well, I think what stood out to me was I thought, oh, I feel like I could have read this exact same article, you know, back when I had my master's students doing Mm -hmm. their projects. It was basically the same information. And it reflects what I heard from parents Mm -hmm. and from young adult clients that, yes, there is a cliff. And parents use that phrase a lot. I mean, just spontaneously. When I was still at St. Louis U and doing focus groups with parents and young adults transitioning out of high school, one mom said to me, yes, having him leave high school was like stepping off a cliff and falling into a deep hole and nobody knew we were down there. Mm. Okay, so it's super lonely and frightening. And I guess it still is because here is this article you know, a little bit later. And I'm not surprised. I'm disappointed. Yeah, (laughs) very disappointed that we're still haven't moved forward enough. But yeah, it's kind of what I expected to read when I saw what the article was about. And, you know, I thought it was very interesting that the kind of the primary needs were for speech language therapy, and occupational therapy, and social skills training, Mm -hmm. which I look at that, and the one comment I would like to make about that is, again, I'm not super surprised, but I think I question that we need to do all this therapy without also balancing off preparing the actual community, Mm -hmm. the workplaces. I think higher education has been coming around. You know, I'm seeing more and more schools, universities, and community colleges and such that are becoming aware that this is a whole cohort of students that they could be teaching. And so that's good. But the rest, the larger community, you know, we keep trying to change the individual to fit what is there. And I think that we need to still support that. But I also want to see us changing what is there mm-hmm. so that, you know, people can be welcomed and valued in the larger community, even if they are people that, you know, communicate differently. Yep. Or need some understanding mm-hmm. and some opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was a real limitation of the article was that it seemed to me to have kind of a narrow view of mm-hmm. the available services, like kind of pegged it into these seven categories when we know as OTs, there's like you said, like environmental changes yeah. that yeah. can happen and societal changes And I was also like, what does it mean by occupational therapy? Because how, in general, how our profession thought about autism 10 years ago is different than how we think about it now. So it really, that was just a limitation. It didn't really get into what that would actually look like and entail. I guess they were asking the parents and the individuals, what do you think you need? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of what is their definition yeah. of what yeah. that would be? You know, does that mean ADLs or IADLs or what does mm-hmm. it mean to them? Yeah, I don't know. But yeah, I love that you said environment because that is the missing piece in that article. Mm-hmm. Kind of. And well, they didn't ask the folks about it. It just wasn't the way it was structured. Yeah. But yeah, and I love that you also earlier keyed in on just the loneliness piece. They didn't use that word in the article, but that to me was just an undercurrent of just creates a lonely situation. Oh, Uh, it does. Yeah. We would, we would say, uh, I'm saying we, my husband helped me a lot in formulating the practice and thinking about it. He's a social worker with a background in mental health. And he referred to the clients as stuck at home. And that I think is a theme that is definitely there that, you know, after high school is over, whether schooling was of super high quality or medium or not so great, in any case, there was an automatic community Mm -hmm. for the student and for the parents. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that community was many years long. I mean, old relationships, deep relationships. And then to have it just be over and then not have anything sometimes to segue to the next part of life is very lonely. Yeah. Yeah. For everybody, everybody involved. Yeah. Yeah. 
and childhood adolescence is a small portion of your life. There's a long life after that. So that's the longest part of your life. Yes. Yes. <laughs> after that. <laughs> so that sets up just the broad societal challenge that we see. What do you think we as OTs can be doing to support autistic individuals as they transition into adulthood? What are some of the things that you did in your practice? Okay. Well, I would say it starts before adolescence, even before adulthood, that OTs who work in the public schools or in private practice with children and teens can start by helping them to think about a future and helping their parents to think about a future that, you know, involves, that includes work and includes friends and includes living apart from parents, perhaps, Mm -hmm. just to help them start to get that in their picture. And that is challenging because many parents and kids are quite overwhelmed. Just getting like, oh, it's just, we're having to fight our way through the IEPs and the, Mm -hmm. you know, the school system. And we're trying to get every kind of therapy as many hours as we can to bring this person to their fullest potential, you know, but I think to take a long view of human development is more helpful. Yes. (laughs) you know, to say, yeah, let's let's think about what kinds of things do you like to do and let's look at all the ways people can work in all the places and kind of start getting their minds wrapped around it rather than having it be so abrupt. Yes. That, oh, high school's over and now we have to be a grown-up. You know, that's not true. <laughs> Nobody is a grown-up at the end of high school. Nobody. No. <laughs> not a typically developing 18, 19-year-old and not a person who has developmental differences. So let's not go into that. Let's just look at the individual as themselves and look at human development as lifelong Mm -hmm. and not feel so pressed to have achieved things at certain timetables. So that's something we can all do. Yep. No matter who we're working with, Mm -hmm. it has a developmental difference. And I think it normalizes things and calms us all down and not feeling so nervous about it all. Yeah. We can help people Think about what is it that they really enjoy? What are some things they really don't enjoy that wouldn't be great things to to have in their lives as they go forward? I think we could strive to get more involved in programs for young adults and, you know, older teenagers that are already in swing. (laughs) And it's not easy. I just moved here to the Denver area. So I've been looking for jobs on Indeed.com. And (laughs) yeah. There are lots of openings for OTs in more traditional medical rehab types of settings. If I was open to that, I could have been placed probably really quickly. But I've held out because I really love working with people with developmental disabilities and especially at the later end. And so I can see that it's hard. But ways to do that are to just go ahead and uh, apply to positions that United Cerebral Palsy at the Down Syndrome Association, get on their boards. I mean, if you want to, if you need to keep your day job, (laughs) you want to start wiggling in there, get on their boards, volunteer, help them to see your face and kind of pay attention to positions that don't say OT, Mm -hmm. but, but you know, you would be great at it and go ahead and apply and see what you can get to happen. I actually am going to be having a conversation (laughs) with somebody from a group called the Independent Living Experience and College Living Experience. They have two parts to their organization. I'm going to talk to her about perhaps being considered for a position in their organization. They weren't looking for an OT, but I think I might be just the woman for this (laughs) organization, you know. And so I I just kind of push my way in there a little bit and say, hey, let's talk, you know, and happily she's willing to have this conversation. I've had some folks that won't talk to me too, because mm-hmm. <laughs> they're just sure they need a social worker. <laughs> yeah. But you're like, no, you really needed me, but I'll just keep knocking on the doors and making friends, get networking with yep. people in, in all kinds of places and kind of getting things going. And then, of course, the other way is private practice. And that's the off-road way. Mm-hmm. That's taking the bull by the horns and, <laughs> and going ahead and making 
a place for yourself. And again, that takes a lot of networking and a lot of talking to various people and showing them one by one, client by client, what you can do. And that's how you build a caseload and a network of colleagues in a community. Yeah. I definitely see all the needs to be met by more private practices like you had. Can you walk us through just some of the specifics of what you would do with your clients who were on your caseload? I guess specifically like an example of an autistic client that you... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'll put one in my mind (laughs) or a couple. I'll make an amalgam. So... Oftentimes when people come to Bright Futures or came to Bright Futures, I have to put it in the past tense because I'm, I'm focusing more on family stuff right now and working for other people. But we would start, oftentimes they didn't want to be there. Many times they had been disappointed over and over and had had intrusive kinds of therapy sessions with psychotherapists and maybe they hadn't had a good experience in their school years. And so they weren't feeling too good about folks like me and they were hopeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of times their parents were kind of hopeless too. I was the the means of last resort. Mm-hmm. They had tried things like Department of Vocational Rehabilitation Services and what I called the big box services like, oh, United Cerebral Palsy and folks that have programs for people with autistic disorders. But often, most often, the kinds of folks who came to me were pretty sophisticated cognitively. And they didn't feel like it was a fit to be in those programs. They didn't identify with the other clients that were a fit for the program. Mm -hmm. I've had more than one new client say to me, I don't do groups. Do Mm. not put me in a group, you know? I'd be like, okay. Okay. That's that's fine. We won't do that. And so I just would ask, you know, what can I do for you? (laughs) What, What are you hoping for? What do you not have going on right now that you wish you had? Let's let me see if there's something I can do for you. And I have a document called the service menu that I made up that just basically says, I would like help with, or I would like to work on, as I think how it's phrased, I would like to work on. And it has a listing of things under topics like work, like I would like to work on developing a resume. I would like mm-hmm. to work on interviewing successfully for a job. Mm-hmm. Okay. I would like to work on, and there's, you know, social. I would like to work on having a circle of friends. I would like to have fun things to do in my free time. I would like help with finding a counselor that meets my needs. I would like to sleep better. Mm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would like to date. So I would like to live independently of my parents' home. And so the client would just say, that's important to me or that's not important to me. And it wasn't about what's hard for you or what can't you do or what do you need help with? It's what would you like to work on? So it's very much giving them agency. And they're just saying, this is what I want. And it's really a nice tool for teaching my clients all the things I could do with them. And for them to think about, oh, maybe I would like this. I hadn't really thought about that. A lot of times when they came to me, like I said, the client was very hopeless and reluctant. And the parents just wanted them to have something to do out of the house. Just something, you know, and they had kind of low expectations. And so I think this detailed form, which I'm happy to share with you, helped to flesh out what they really wanted. Because what I want to know is what, what's your heart's desire? Mm. Not what's the, what's the bottom level rung that would be, you know, the least thing you would want. I want to know what's the thing you really want. Yeah. And sometimes people have wishes, you know, that are way above what is probably possible, but not too often. Mm-hmm. Not too often. Usually they're right in the, in the, ballpark once they start to really think about it. And if they are kind of out there and not likely to be successful, there are pieces of it that we can do. The key, the, you know, what is it you love about the idea of being a police officer? I remember saying that to a client. What do you love oh, about yeah. it? And he said, well, 
I, I want to help people. I want to be respected. And I like the idea of wearing a uniform, you know, mm-hmm. and then, and then I really want to taser people. And then I was like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, the other parts we could Yes, yes. Frankly, we even worked on that last part. I mean, we found ultimately that he would want to work in an environment that was really masculine and where he could be really physical, you know, so he ended up working in a warehouse with other men. And we found a mixed martial arts dojo (laughs) where the the guy who was the head person there was really willing to work with my client, knowing that he might need a little extra guidance and some protection at times because he was a little, you know, needed a little hand of, not all of his clients would need. So that is what I did. So I would help them figure out what do you really yearn for? I also have a picture card sort that I invented that has really opened some eyes for for me. I've had clients that um, were almost, you know, not verbal, very limited. And I had no idea. One fellow pulled up this picture of a horse and his eyes lit up and he said, horses, yes, horses, you know? And I was like, well, you want horses? And he said, yes, yes. I said, have you ever ridden a horse? And he's like, yes. Yes. So we, you know, they had, the family had relocated. He had been going to therapeutic horseback riding and nobody had mm-hmm. mentioned it, you know, but for him, that was really important. Yeah. And we found him a stables where they were doing therapeutic horseback riding and put that in his life again, you know? So just, there are just ways to kind of get at it that are a little less direct. And sometimes people need time you know, to roll it around. Like, I think a lot of people with ASD, a lot of people in special education haven't been exposed to some things, you Mm -hmm. know? And even frankly, the literature tells us even typically developing teenagers are not exposed to the full array of occupations of work, not occupations in the OT sense, but work. Work. Possibilities because there's so work. many, yeah. Well, there are so many, and a lot of them are kind of remote or hidden, or they don't understand the the intricacies of it. Like, mm-hmm. so I take people. That's another thing I do. I take people to the places. So if somebody says, "I think I want to work with animals," well, let's look at maybe three ways to work with animals. We can look at a dog grooming place and go shadow there. We can look at a dog walker see what they do and talk to them, take them to lunch and have a chat and maybe mm-hmm. go for a walk, see what that looks like. We can look at what a veter- veterinary assistant does or a vet tech and how do you get there? You know, how do you become credentialed to do dog grooming, vet tech? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what do you have to know to be a dog walker? You know, if you start a business, you have to be ready to run a business. So let's talk yeah. about that you and your parents. See if y'all are up for that. You know, there are many ways to work with animals. You can, you know, volunteer at a shelter. You know, that's another way to work with animals. So there are many ways to kind of get to where your heart is Mm. and many, you know, levels of requirement Mm -hmm. to be able to do it. So I try to help people experience those things. You know, let's go like, wow, in the veterinary clinic, there are certain smells. There are, <laughs> you know, that sometimes animals pass, you know, sometimes they die and you're there uh, and you're present for that. Sometimes, you know, the animal's owners are emotional. Mm-hmm. You have to know that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, some of the procedures that you might assist with might cause pain to an animal. Are you open to that? Can you handle that? You know, yeah. and then. Yeah, so that kind of thing. I would take people to colleges and we would meet with faculty or student advisors and talk about, well, what does it take to become a preschool teacher? Or, Mm. you know, how does that work? How does college work? How do people pay for this? Mm -hmm. What what are the classrooms looking like? How do you want to visit a classroom and spend some time and see if, if that feels good? And I would only, you know pitch things (laughs) and try things that I had a very strong sense were accessible to my client. Mm, Yeah. You know, cognitively, academically, 
financially. So I was hand choosing high odds success. And sometimes if it was a place that I had no idea what it was really like, I would test it myself before I would even mention it to my client. Yeah. You know, I would go and look at it and think about them, or I would talk to people there. And if it looked like, you know, it looked like a soft target (laughs) that I thought we could hit, then let's go look at it together. And even if my client was really like, this is what I want, I need to do it. Let's go and we'll check it out together. And you make that assessment. Yeah. You know, I mean, I don't want to shut the door on anybody, but I also didn't want them to continue to feel frustrated and disappointed and left out. Yep. Yeah, And even though this feels or sounds so different than what a lot of us do as OTs, it fits so well in our OT framework. It's so client-centered and it takes you to all these places. And I think in many of our settings, we wish we could go really follow the client like you were able to do. I feel like sometimes we feel confined by our reimbursement, but that's also the beauty of private practice, Yeah, which I'm hearing that that's like undergirds how you were able to do that. So I guess I was wondering if you could speak to us just a little bit about the private practice portion of Mm -hmm. it. I'm particularly interested in, was it by the hour? And then how were decisions being made with the parent and the client? Because I'm hearing some Ah, possible complexity in there. Yes, you're reading the nuance well. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this, I mean, this practice took me into places with clients that I never imagined that we would, I would go. Mm -hmm. And it was so much fun to do. And sometimes I would think, my goodness, I can't believe this is, but it was, it fit right into the framework. It fit right into, and it worked. So, Mm -hmm. because I was able to pop people out of being stuck at home that had been stuck at home for quite some time. Yeah. So it was, it was private pay. I wasn't on any insurance panels and I would meet with the client and the parents initially for a no charge meeting to just describe for me to them to describe what they, who they were and what they needed. And for me to describe you know, the doing with kind of model. Mm-hmm. I was not going to do a whole lot of deep assessment. They often came with big piles of records from psychologists and OTs and educators. And that's great. That was really great. That put me a couple of blocks ahead on the game board, but I mostly just saw people in action. And then if I thought, gosh, I really feel like we would all benefit from an executive function assessment or something I would usually send out for that. And I would send them to a psychologist or, you know, somebody who specialized in doing that. And I did that for a couple of reasons. One is I didn't have the the materials and have the test kits to do Mm, all these things that I might have in a hospital setting. And another was I thought it would interrupt the relationship we had, which is I work for you. Mm, You're my boss. Yep. You tell me what you want and I'll give you some options of how I think we could go about getting there. And then you choose mm-hmm. and then we'll do it and we'll test it and we'll see how that goes. And then we'll try something else if that isn't so great or we'll add to it if it's working well. So I didn't really want to be that one sitting it with the, the pen and the stopwatch and the scores and, you know, mm-hmm. I, that wasn't how I wanted to do it. So it was private pay. I'm coming back to the practice. It was just a regular business, a small business, an S-Corp corporation, or started as an LLC. And mm-hmm. Accountant had to tell me why to transition to an <laughs> S-Corporation eventually, which we did. And people just paid me by the hour. I would send them a bill at the end of the month, and they would send me a check. I would put a self-addressed envelope <laughs> with mm-hmm. a stamp yep. on it in there just to kind of help them along. Some people would pay me through their bank. Would you start with like an agreed upon number of hours? Because I could see this taking... Yeah, it could get really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sometimes it did. With some people I did. Yeah, I had some folks who were like, well, we are not going to be able to afford more than X amount of months. Yep. And I would say, fine, that's fine. Let's do that. And then if I need more, I'm going to come to you. (laughs) Yes. I feel like we're on the cusp of getting him hired or having success in a college program where he has failed two or three times already. 
and mm-hmm. I need more hours, I'm going to come to you. Yeah. And I said, I'm fine with a payment plan. I mean, if you ran up a $5,000 bill in a month and you could only afford 500 a month, we'll just do that. We'll mm-hmm. just, you just, you know, pay me until you pay it off. Yep. And folks were happy with that. I mean, I w- it's scary, isn't it? It is scary yeah, to yes. tell people, I'm going to take your money. <laughs> yes. You know? Do you mind sharing your hourly rate? Just No. I started at $140 an hour. Mm-hmm. And I Which is similar that. to like a chiropractor. If you Yeah. I chose yeah. by talking to other practitioners. Yep. You know, I had psychologist friends who had been in practice for decades, and they were much more than that. And, you know, I looked at home health OT and I was like, you know, to me, it's certainly, if I can make the big change in this person's life that you're asking for, if I can facilitate Mm -hmm. that and it happens on my watch, you're going to think that was such a bargain, you know, and even if I can provide a great relief from the distress that you're in, you're going to find that worthwhile too. And it is scary though. Private practice is scary. And private practice in a direction like what we just said that nobody was doing. I didn't really have, okay, this is working over there in Massachusetts or this is working over here in California. I didn't have anybody to look at. So it was a great leap of faith mm-hmm. for my clients and for me, Yep, you know, but I, I can say it worked out. It was yeah. good. And I didn't have unhappy customers as a rule. Mm-hmm. I did have you know, a couple that were not a good fit or they weren't ready. And we tried to cut bait quickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we realized, you know, one or the other of us realized this is not right this now. Isn't working. It's yeah. not going to be good. Then we would just gracefully, you know, say, here are some ideas that you might want to go and look into. And I think we're finished mm-hmm. with what I can do here. Yeah. Sometimes I had parents who had different dreams than their son or daughter. And you kind of alluded to that. And, that yes. is, and so sometimes I was having these sessions where we were working through that. Yeah. You know, I was prepared to send people to family therapy as needed. I didn't really have to do that very often. It was more helping my client to verbalize what they really wanted or didn't want and helping the parent to verbalize what their fears and hopes were. And usually they would come together. Mm-hmm. And have a, something we could all get on board with. Yeah. I had a young man who had to drop out of college, undergraduate. He had been going to a very prestigious technical college, university in another state, many states away. And he had just collapsed mm-hmm. and had to be sent home and was not well and hadn't left home for 13 years yeah. after that. Okay. And he was in tough shape when I started working with him, the mom's dream was very much that he would go back to that school and finish. And that was her whole focus. And when she would say that, I would just watch him like crush into his chair, like just look like he was collapsing into his chair. So when we were having a session by ourselves, I said, you know, your mom has mentioned this, is this what you're aiming for? And he just said, no, no, no. I only see pain there. I said, okay, well, then you and I, at some point, <laughs> are going to have to let your mom know that because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not fair for her to think that's what we're working on Yeah, if that's not what we're working on. And if that's not what you want to work on, then that's not what we're doing because you're my boss. I will help you to do that. Yeah. So we did. And over some time and her adjusting to that loss of her dream she was willing for him to go to a local technical college that was like a two-year program. He got his associate's degree in the area, you know, in the IT, which was her dream for him and his dream as well. Mm-hmm. He got that done and got a job in IT and then ended up getting his bachelor's degree. And I won't be surprised if he continues, but he could not just jump from where he was and go back to that other college that was too much yeah yeah that makes me think of as OTs when we're being client-centered that means we might find ourselves having conversations like you're talking about that maybe we weren't expecting or we don't think of as being in our skill set like 
trying to have these conversations about what's a mom's dream versus our child's. Mm -hmm. And we don't think of that as being what we're skilled at. When I think of the OTs, I know I'm like, they do have skill at that. We just don't get to practice enough. And I want us to like grow in our confidence there and just recognize that that's part of being client-centered is going places that we don't expect and that we have the skill set to do that. Yes. And to recognize too, okay, I'm getting out of my zone. Yes. You know, and it's okay. I mean, that's healthy. That's, we have to, we have a zone. (laughs) Yes. We have a scope of practice and we have a personal scope of practice. And I will say um, that I did my private practice after decades of working in mental health, working in university settings, and also being a parent. Therapeutic use of self means to me, everything I am is brought to my practice. And so I might not have been able to do that kind of a session, you know, my first 10 years of practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I doubt it. Yeah. But as I grew in experience and life experience, as well as professional experience and education, I have learned to have some tough conversations that work out really well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know that he and his, his parents are very happy with what he's achieved. And it's so much better than where he started. And they tell me that. They, they say, you've saved us. So, yeah, <laughs> and I know it wasn't me. He was ready. He had the abilities and I was a catalyst and a facilitator. So, yeah, OTs, we need to be courageous and we need to, you know, go to the mat for our clients when they need it, when they need an advocate. I think we, we have all the equipment to do it. And if you're younger in practice or you're in a zone that seems unfamiliar, but, you know, you think probably it's possible for an OT to do this ethically, then talk to colleagues who are more experienced and get some guidance and counsel. And if you're not in your zone, then find a practitioner who can pick up that piece. Mm-hmm. Do the therapy, help this family. Yeah, I partnered with so many, not so many, I partnered with a handful <laughs> A handful of really great psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers and educators that I could very uh, confidently send clients to for help that I wasn't qualified to do. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that as a fit where in the article where it mentioned those three co-occurring psychiatric disorders that Mm -hmm. a lot of these clients have, I think one of the value of OT is we have that more mental health background than mm-hmm. a lot of practitioners, yeah. but we also know that helps us know our boundaries then too, to yeah. also know where we can help and when it's time to get help for sure. I need a partner here. Yeah. yeah. That's how I looked at it. I'm like, well, I cannot lift this person out of their depression. Yeah. I cannot correct their confused psychotic thinking, you know, and that's when you need a partner. Mm-hmm. And, and, and evaluate. And sometimes it's like, I know I've helped clients be evaluated accurately and by going with them to appointments, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking of one guy who, when the first time or two that we met, it was clear to me that he was having delusional thinking and possibly hallucinations, you mm-hmm. know? So I'm like, well, you're having something special going on here that, you know, is beyond what I do, but I have a colleague who I think might be helpful to you. Would you be willing to see a psychiatrist mm-hmm. with me if I set that up? Okay, we go. We're sitting in the first meeting, the evaluation meeting, and the doctor's asking my client these questions, and he's saying everything's fine, everything's fine. And I'm like, whoa, wait a minute, you know. So I finally said, with your permission, I said to my client, may I chime in a little bit here? And he said, well, yeah, sure, sure. And I said, well, would you please describe to the doctor the the kind of disturbing experiences that you've been having, you know, at home and with your car? And that cued him. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, these, you know, bizarre things are happening in my house. And somebody is lifting the roof off of my car and messing around inside and then putting it back on at night. Mm -hmm. I don't think I know, but I know, you know, the doctor's like, oh, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, that's why we're here. 
And then, you know, then he got appropriately diagnosed and treated. And then he and I could carry on with the OT part. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I helped him with his medication management. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we added that in. Yes. <laughs> we added that in because now he had medication. Yeah. Yeah. And as we got to know each other over time and he was having good medication results and he, he shared with me that he had actually been hearing voices since he had been a child. Mm, yep. Yeah. And it's like, wow, is it better to not hear them? And he's, oh yeah. Yeah. It's very distracting. He <laughs> said, I'm like, yeah, I think it would be. So. Yeah. And that just speaks to in this private practice model where you get to spend the time with people and get to do the extra level of advocacy and partnership that Mm -hmm. sometimes we don't get to do in those other reimbursement models, just how powerful that is and how I could imagine that would help alleviate that loneliness that we talked about, which is kind of that underlying thread there. Yeah. I have a lot more questions I want to ask about your private practice, but we're we're coming to the end of our hour. And I was wondering if you could just share your vision for how you see occupational therapy playing a role in serving autistic clients as they transition into adulthood. Well, I mean, I think I really loved doing Bright Futures the way I did it. It was very time intensive. It was, <laughs> mm, yeah. I was able to do it because at that time in my life, we were empty nesters and it was like, I had all the time in the world and it, it didn't bother my husband if suddenly I wasn't available for dinner that night or if I was running out the door, you know, and not coming back until late in the day or whatever. It didn't, it was no problem. But now I'm a, a care providing grandmother <laughs> to a little girl and it's really important and demanding role hours wise. I don't have the freedom to just like jump out and run places in the spur of the moment as much. So I'm not going to do a business by myself, but I do think for other people who are younger and starting out, it's a great model to do private practice and to not have all the rules and boxes to fill out and, and the limitations of our role. I think that people with autistic disorder and really any people people with autism are not that different from anybody else, uh, do well when we do with and provide that coaching in real time, in real situations that they are invested in and that they love and want to be a part of. And you can see, you know, when you're with people in their homes, in their communities, at Starbucks, in an informational luncheon with somebody that has a work that they would, you know, that my client is interested in or at the doctor's office or whatever, that's when you can see what really will help them or what's getting in their way. You can draw it to their attention. Oh, this is what I saw happening. And if we could just do that differently or set the situation up differently, you know, I think you're going to have success. And that is what works. And helping the other side of the equation, helping the psychiatrist see if he would, you know, maybe have asked his question a little differently, he would have had a much more rich and useful answer. I've had times when I've had folks who started a job and then they had a social faux pas that was very understandable from an ASD point of view, Mm -hmm. but, but it offended important people at their job and almost lost their position. And I come in as the advocate and the educator and say, hey, you know, this is why that happened. And this is the disability that he's talked about needing accommodation for. So let's help him get past this and not do it again and help you get past it and not cut him out of his job. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what works. So I'd love to see OTs doing that kind of bigger, out of the box, not so much this is what I do in my session and then, you know, good luck to you. but more this is what you do in your life and let me see how I can make that work you know how I can help you get past the the rough patches and help the people around you to have a little sense of humor and Mm -hmm. not be quite so concerned that you know you're not exactly like everybody else which wouldn't that be boring yeah we were all like each other yeah so 
Uh, that's what I would like to see is OTs having more freedom to do full OT, yes. what I call authentic OT, mm-hmm. the kind that we teach you in school mm-hmm. that made you fall in love with your profession. Yeah, yeah. it's such a beautiful, beautiful picture. And that's definitely become one of my visions too, is where there are more private practices, specifically serving adults, it's such of with multiple conditions, it's such an underserved mm-hmm segment. And I know there's a lot of details that go into that, that we didn't cover, but the pillars that you talked about of being client-centered and then also being willing to form partnerships in the community to truly serve those individuals. I think that's a beautiful vision. I'd like to head into our rapid fire section. I have a couple questions to ask you. And if you just want to answer with what comes to your mind. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. When you were at Bright Futures, what was one of the first sentences you would usually say to your clients? Hmm? How may I help you? Hmm. And what is the last sentence you would usually say to a client at the end of one of your sessions? Ah. Well, I would say, well, thanks for coming by today or thanks for letting me come to you. Yeah. You know, I've had a wonderful time with you. When would you like to hear from me again? Do you want to make an appointment or do you want me to just call you in a week or two? Or what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. You know? And that way they knew there was no pressure that they yes. had to be on a treadmill. They're the boss. That's right. You're my boss. What was one of your favorite OT assessments to do? Well, I liked my two that I invented the best at, honestly, which, you know, that's why I made them, I guess. I really liked the service menu very much. I I thought it really got across what I needed to tell them and what they needed to tell me to start things off. And I liked my picture card sort Mm. very much. People had fun with it. And it really opened the gates for some fun conversations that were surprising. Mm Mm-hmm. And what was your favorite OT intervention to deliver? <laughs> well, in, in general, and I've had a lot of fun with it with many kinds of clients. I really like cooking with people. Oh, yeah. Me yeah. too. I love cooking with people because it does so many things. Mm-hmm. It tells me a lot about their thinking and their motor skills and their planning. And it, it gives them an opportunity to do something that's grown up and real. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a real thing and you can give away your food and people love that and you can nurture yourself by eating it. Mm-hmm. And what's something that you've read recently that has inspired you as an OT? I, this question, I was sort of, I was like, oh my gosh, what can I say? <laughs> That's not just silly, you know, I yeah. read a lot of silly stuff, but I love this book, Shop Class as Soul Craft. And it is not an OT book. It's not about how to do OT, but it is written by a man who went from being like a think tank person who had a background in political science and very abstract, but he loved working with his hands and he became a motorcycle mechanic. Oh, cool. And he writes so eloquently. And I think it says so many things that occupational therapists love. And both for our own work and also what we do with clients. But it's Mm -hmm. very much about the value of hands-on craftsmanship and using our hands to do things. Kind Mm -hmm. of goes back to the Mary Riley (laughs) quote. I was just thinking of her quote and trying to remember it. Oh, no, you're going to ask me. I didn't write that down. Man through the use of his hands. And that's how it starts out. Yes. Basically can, can, can affect the state of his health. Yes. His health. Beautiful. Good. Yeah. You had a better memory for that. Then. Well, <laughs> been around the track longer. Um, yeah. This, that would fit right in this book. Yes. Right into this book. And, you know, it's a book that I have not finished. I've been reading it for a long time in bits and pieces. And it's very highlighted and marked up because every time I pick it up, I find something that sort of strikes my soul a little awesome. bit. Says, oh, this is truth you know? Beautiful. And my last question is, how do you hope that one of these clients felt after their initial visit at Bright Futures? Uh, Well, I saw it over and over. And that's what kept me like so excited. I saw hope. Hmm. And many of them would cry and say, oh, you know, I've had people say, do you really think I could have that? 
And I would say, I don't see why not. I mean, and I would only say that truthfully. I, I don't see why not. You know, I think we can get there. Yeah, hope and relief. And sometimes their eyes would shine after some sessions and you're like, yeah, you're excited, <laughs> aren't you? I see the little shine in your eyes. Yeah. 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 So much um, fun. Well, Deborah, thank you for the beautiful work that you've done over the years. And I'm just thinking now of the therapists out there who are interested in doing something similar and that they have someone to follow and model their well, practice after I'm, when you didn't have that. So thank you for being one of the pioneers in this area. Well, I appreciate your kind words and I'm here. You know, if anybody contacts me, I'm always available to bounce ideas around. I want, I want to get as many of us out there doing authentic OT as possible. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the time today. Thank you. Wow, you guys, it was such an inspiration for me to see someone who sees this big picture, really societal challenge of the services cliff and had the courage to address it in this really practical way. I hope that this episode inspired you just to think a little differently about how we as OTs can rise up to these challenges of these big picture obstacles that we see facing our clients. And if you are interested in earning a certificate for your time today, what you are going to do next is head to otpotential.com where you can either sign in or sign up for the OT Potential Club. It is currently only $49 to have access to our courses and the many resources in the club. So if you are not yet a member, I highly encourage you to join us. And lastly, I just want to thank you for your time today. I hope this podcast helps you broaden your knowledge, tweak your practice, and stay evidence-based. Take care, and we'll talk to you next time.